0: From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food.
1: I mean, I have tried on many occasions to impress Chinese friends with Western cooking uh, with, with no success whatsoever, because they normally find, you know, they, they just do seem to prefer Chinese food. But funnily enough, I have managed to impress quite senior Chinese chefs with roast potatoes, which I parboil and then roast in, you know, duck fat or goose fat. And the Chinese don't really go in for potatoes in the same way that Europeans do. And so they have found that lovely crunch and uh, the golden fragrance of roast potatoes utterly delicious.
0: Fuchsia Dunlop has dedicated the better part of her life to the study of Chinese cuisine. As the first Westerner to train at the Sichuan Institute of Higher Cuisine, she went on to write numerous critically acclaimed books on Chinese cooking and food culture. Her latest project, Invitation to a Banquet, examines the history of Chinese food through a menu of 30 dishes. Hi, Fuchsia. Hi, Evan. Oh, it's just every time you come up with a new book, I'm just so happy. <laughs> I'm so <laughs> delighted to hear that. <laughs> I'm so excited. Chinese cuisine is so epic. It's such an epic cuisine. Um, it, it, it goes back centuries, millennia. Can you talk about how the culture itself, how Chinese culture is guided by
1: food? Well, I think that the Chinese, as I argue in the book, I mean, they very much um, have identified themselves since ancient times as people who cook, who eat cooked food. So, in the distant past, in the classic texts, you, you find this idea that the Chinese were people who civilized their food after the discovery of fire by cooking it. And at that point, they left behind um, this very dangerous world of raw food and disease. And they also used to see themselves as being people who eat cooked food Um, who ate cooked food, and the foreigners or barbarians who lived beyond the boundaries of China as people who ate raw food. Also, the Chinese have, since the beginnings of their civilization, communicated with gods and ancestors through the offering of food and drink. So that's also been fundamentally important in Chinese culture. And also, very early on, I mean, for about 2,000 years, there was this idea that diet was the foundation of good health and the identification of food with medicine so again food is tremendously important in just living properly and living well and apart from that right from the beginning i mean in very early literature from the sort of third century bc you find these rapturous descriptions of food great banquets of different dishes so i think it's true to say that the the chinese are a a culture that's particularly centered around food
0: given that is the same thing happening in modern day china as in ha- as is happening here where more and more young people are choosing not to cook
1: Absolutely. Yes, I mean, it's really noticeable when I was a student in Sichuan in the 1990s that everybody cooked, like people couldn't afford to eat out very much. People were actually very good cooks and they could not only rustle up supper for their family from fresh ingredients, but also the elder generation were really excellent at making their own pickles, they could cure winter sausages and other meats. So they were very capable. And it's noticeable that young people these days often don't cook at all. And I think that's partly because in families of single children with huge academic pressure to achieve, cooking just isn't seen as some sort of useful (laughs) way to spend your time. And I know so many young people who really don't know how to cook. And of course, coupled with that, you have this great expansion in the availability of really delicious and diverse takeout food and delivery food. And so, yes, there seems to be a very marked decline in cooking skills. So interesting.
0: Um, You write, Chinese food has been a victim of its own success. What do
1: you mean by that?
0: And, And could you talk about the more prominent misconceptions about
1: Chinese food? Well, yes. So what I mean by Chinese food was a victim of his own success is that it was a very early emigrant cuisine. Um, in America, in later in Britain, in other parts of the world, Cantonese immigrants were incredibly successful at developing this style of cooking that everyone loved, you know, that you have takeouts in every town in America and it's the same in Britain. And, um, this style of takeout food was very easy for Westerners, so no bones or shells, very appealing flavors, lots of sweet taste, lots of deep fried foods. It was inexpensive, it was accessible, and people loved it. And so Chinese food became established in a way that was on the one hand really successful, but on the other hand was a very poor reflection of one of the world's grandest and most diverse and most sophisticated cuisine. So in China itself, yes, of course you have sort of you have deep fried food, you have you know inexpensive takeout food, you have street food, but you also have incredibly light and delicate cooking, um, a wealth of seasonal vegetables lightly cooked and extremely um, labour intensive time-consuming and expensive banquet cuisine. So what we were seeing in the West was just one facet of Chinese cuisine, and that became established in people's minds as what Chinese food was. And I think because of that, we have all these misconceptions of Chinese food that I think to a certain extent are lessening, but are still quite prevalent. So one is that Chinese food is not something that you spend a lot of money on, that it's tasty and nice, but it's not sort of prestige food. And this is so misleading because China has an ancient history of really serious gastronomy and sophisticated cooking. Um, Another misconception, which for me is the most ridiculous of them all, is that Chinese food is unhealthy. And I think that's because people look at deep-fried takeout food with lots of sugar and strongly flavoured sauces, and Westerners almost always order their takeout food with fried rice or fried noodles, which is actually not very typical of the way Chinese people eat themselves. And so there is this idea that Chinese food may be delicious, but you don't want to eat it every day because it's not that healthy. But I think no other culture in the world is probably as obsessed with the intimate links between diet and health as the Chinese. You know, the earliest Chinese recipes were actually manuscripts of medicinal tonic foods. And anyone who has Chinese friends or family will know Chinese people talk all the time about how to eat and what to eat, um, to maintain health, to treat disease, to deal with changes in, in climate or seasons. So that's a misconception that is so um, completely bizarre when you look at you know, the real culture of Chinese gastronomy. Um, And the other, I suppose, is that, and and this is a, a stereotype that really fascinates me, which is this idea that the Chinese eat everything. And Westerners have always seen this in a really negative light. It's true that the Chinese, I mean, China's a huge country with a vast range of geographical terrains and hugely diverse produce, So the Chinese eat a vast range of ingredients because that's what's available to them. And they also have a really adventurous approach to ingredients. So they eat sort of unusual things and parts of, you know, like chicken's feet, for example, which are discarded by people in other cultures. But the thing that perplexes me is this negativity. So the the Western stereotype has always been, the Chinese eat everything because they were very poor and they were just desperate and they would eat anything. And this is so misleading because, you know, if you go to China, I mean, in any agrarian culture and society, people, if they kill an animal, they want to make the most of it and they eat, you know, parts that maybe modern Western consumers don't tend to eat. But in addition to that, if you look at the highest echelons of Chinese gastronomy, imperial cuisine, you'll find delicacies like goose feet or duck tongues which are eaten not because they're they're just any old offal but because they are really prized and partly because the chinese have a very developed appreciation of texture and mouthfeel and really enjoy for example the slithery texture of a of a goose foot or the intricacy of duck tongue the sort of game that you play with your tongue and teeth to extract the edible bits from the little bones and so on that's all part of the fun of eating but also in in chinese culture there's a real psychological thrill to having something that is a privilege that other people can't have. So, for example, you have a whole duck. Well, anyone can have, you know, the duck breast, but the tongue is a tiny, delicate morsel. And in the, in the era before refrigeration, anyone who could afford to have a whole plate of duck tongues, I mean, that was an extraordinary delicacy. In fact, one of the, one of the dishes that I write about in the book is, is something that completely blew my mind, that I was served in Hangzhou a few years ago in the Jiangnan region near Shanghai and that was a dish that contained the cheeks of 200 little catfish so 400 little cheeks each the size of a fingertip in a soup and just the psychological frisson of privilege of being at the table that was gifted these treasured morsels from 200 little fish was just extraordinary it's so amazing um
0: Could you speak a little bit of the bifurcated nature of Chinese home cooking and food that is um, more the purview of specialists?
1: Yeah, well, so like any great cuisine, Chinese cuisine is extremely diverse and it has lots of different levels and lots of different styles. So home cooking, the the equipment used is minimal. You might have a Chinese cleaver, a a Chinese cutting knife, a chopping board, a wok, a steamer and a pot. Um, You do tend to have several dishes even at quite simple Chinese meals. So whereas a Western cook might cut up a lot of ingredients and make them into one stew, in China you would tend to stir fry your tomatoes with some beaten egg and then separately stir fry your spinach and then separately cook something. Else. But most Chinese cooking is done on a stovetop. So you cut your food into little pieces and then you stir fry it in a wok or maybe you boil it in a soup. But Chinese people at home generally don't have ovens. So there's no baking or roasting traditionally. When it comes to professional cooking, In some senses, the equipment is equally simple. So often the main tools are the Chinese cleaver, the cutting board and the wok and the steamer. But there's a dazzling diversity of different cooking methods. So there are some, if you want an example of a dish you'd never make at home, it's something like Peking duck, because Peking duck is made in not just an oven, but a particular sort of oven built of brick in which you can hang whole ducks. Um, and it's traditionally fueled by a fruit wood fire at the mouth of the oven. Um, but in general, Chinese chefs, when I was at the chef's school in Sichuan, we learned 56 different cooking methods. So many of these were using a wok, but there were different ways of handling the heat. Very fast stir frying was called bao or bao chow, which literally means explode frying. So that's when you're cooking your in- ingredients at a very high heat, very quickly, and also in Chinese professional cooking, at the highest levels, you get what are called Gong Fu Cai, Kung Fu dishes, <laughs> um, which means dishes that are made with really particular art and labor. So, for example, a classic Sichuanese banquet dish, Ji Dou Hua, it's called chicken tofu. And traditionally what you do is you pulverize a chicken breast with the back of a cleaver or two and you reduce it to a puree just by hammering it with the back of your cleaver Um, and you make this very fine puree and then you mix it with a little egg white and a little bit of starch and then you set it at a very low temperature to a curd in a fine soup made with chicken and ham and you create something that looks and has the texture exactly of tofu which is a cheap street snack but is actually made from luxury ingredients like chicken breast and this beautiful stock (laughs) so that's just a snapshot because um there are so many regional differences and so many grand dishes and um, it's really quite complicated but on the other hand as you said with home cooking Chinese food can also just be what someone tired rustles up at home from a few ingredients when they get home from work
0: um what three roles do beans play in Mapo Tofu that exhibit the the central importance of the soybean
1: in China? Well, so Mapo Tofu is a really interesting dish because the main ingredient is tofu, which is made from soybean. Um, The main flavoring is Sichuan chili bean paste, which is made with fava beans fermented with chilies. And that's what gives it that really deep, savory, punchy flavor. And it's also made with fermented black beans, which are those little bit black beans that you have in black bean sauce, which have been made in China for more than 2000 years. And so you have a dish in which... The flavors and the main protein and the main ingredient are all made of beans. What you get is not just nutrition, but also those really bold umami flavors that you also get from meat in other cuisines. And that's one of the reasons that the Chinese were able to enjoy and be so inventive with a traditional diet that was very light on meat and consisted largely of vegetables and grains. Because if you cook with um, fermented beans, you get these rich, bold, satisfying tastes that make vegetarian dishes taste much more appealing
0: knife work is such an important part of um, of bringing Chinese food to life and in so many different ways can you explain how the art of cutting factors into the
1: cuisine yeah well that's it's another key characteristic of Of Chinese food, and it's really part of what makes Chinese food Chinese. So as long as about 2,000 years ago during the Han Dynasty, the Chinese were already settling into the habit of eating food that had been cut into small pieces and eating it with chopsticks. And as you can imagine, cutting food into small pieces is intimately bound up with the use of chopsticks because If you're eating with chopsticks and knives are never on the table on the traditional Chinese dinner table, then all your food has to be cut into small chopstickable morsels or it has to be soft enough to tear apart with chopsticks. So very early on, the Chinese were cutting food into small pieces. Long before they had stir-fried food, they were eating these gung, these thick stew soups, which were full of ingredients cut into small pieces. Um, Also... Chinese food, as that great translator of Chinese culture to the West, Lin Yutang, once said, Chinese cuisine is all about the art of mixture. So whereas an American might just have a slab of meat, a steak, uh, you know, on someone's plate for dinner, in China, you'd be much more likely to cut that piece of meat into thin slivers and stir-fry it with a vegetable ingredient, And many Chinese dishes are like that. You cut food into small pieces and then you combine it. And that's one of the reasons why Chinese restaurant menus are often so famously long, because you can have a limited range of ingredients and then you can cook them in different combinations like lottery numbers and come up with a vast range of dishes.
0: So how should we order in a Chinese restaurant the next time we go out with a group of friends?
1: (laughs) Well... It's a, there's not one hard and fast rule, but I would say the most important principle is that, firstly, you want to have a master plan. So don't just have each guest ordering the dish they fancy, because then you might have a great repetition. You might have three chicken dishes on the table or two things that are sweet and sour. And the art of ordering a Chinese meal is all about ensuring that there's great variety on the table with minimal repetition. So if you've got one dish which is made with pork then maybe the next dish you want to have fish or and or vegetable. If one dish is very dark in color, like red braised pork cooked with soy sauce and sugar and wine, then how about having something that's a vibrant green, like a stir-fried vegetable? So you want to have a contrast of colors, of cooking methods, of ingredients. You want to have... If you have one dish that is dry and fragrant, like deep-fried spare ribs, then you want to have something that's liquidy. So you can look at your menu and just try to have dishes that are all different from each other and not to repeat. And that means that every bite is going to be interesting and that the palate never becomes tired.
0: Fuchsia Dunlop is the James Beard
1: Award-winning
0: author of several critically acclaimed books about Chinese food, including her most recent cookbook, The Food of Sichuan. We've been discussing her latest work, Invitation to a Banquet, The Story of Chinese Food. Coming up, when Kevin Pang's father emailed him a YouTube link, he thought it was spam and deleted it. But then his mom sent it again, and Kevin clicked only to discover that his Chinese father had become a YouTube star, sharing his family recipes with millions of people. Now, the father-son duo have a cookbook, and we have their story. Welcome back to Good Food. The family that cooks together books together. Isn't that what they say? While some fathers and their adult sons watch football or work on cars or play golf, Kevin and Jeffrey Pang prefer a more gustatory form of father-son bonding. They co-host a cooking show called Hunger Pangs for America's Test Kitchen. Apparently, this wasn't enough togetherness for them, so they decided to co-write a cookbook a very Chinese cookbook, features recipes that traveled with the pangs in a dog-eared notebook when the family emigrated from Hong Kong. It also features recipes for popular American Chinese dishes coexisting side by side. Hello, Kevin, and hello, Jeffrey. Welcome to Good Food.
2: Thanks, Evan. It's so great to be here.
0: Hello. (laughs) Jeffrey, I have to start with you. Um, Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) <laughs> what led you to start doing videos? Eventually, creating a YouTube channel.
3: I love to cook and love to eat. I was inspired by my mother, you know, and uh, so so that's why I try to pass my recipe to and teach my son how to cook but they're not interested so that's why where me and my wife kevin will try to use uh, the youtube to make some video to share our recipe to the other people and also i think kevin and my daughter karen will also will love to see it and and kevin
0: how did you first find out about the videos
3: <laughs> well,
2: uh, I first got an email from my dad. Uh, it was one of those emails that I think I might have deleted within five seconds of looking at it, getting it, because that's what you do when your dad forwards you a YouTube link. And then it wasn't until weeks later that my mom said, hey, have you seen what your dad's videos are doing? And I clicked on it and you know, I saw a familiar hand and I heard some kind of a cheesy royalty-free music. And then I saw my grandma there for, for some strange reason. And it turned out they were making a video of our scallion pancake recipes. And, you know, it had so many views. And must have like, you know, tens of thousands of views at that point. And I was completely flabbergasted. And then as the months went on, he would just keep making more and more videos. The view count kept going up and up. And I was in complete shock, to be frank. <laughs>
0: I love this so much (laughs) because usually it's the younger person who is dragging the older person along. In this case, he shamed you into it. How did the series Hunger Pangs come about?
2: Well, I had joined America's Test Kitchen uh, about three years ago. And uh, I think I must have passed along the story that I originally wrote in the New York Times Magazine about how my dad became this unlikely YouTube star. And I passed it to them and I said, you know what, well, what if we did a Chinese cooking show, but let's do it together. And uh, I remember telling my dad about this. And, and dad, do you remember, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember what your reaction was when I told you, do you want to be on camera? Do you remember how you reacted, dad?
3: <laughs> I... I, I thought you 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 are just killing me. I thought this is a, just a just a joke. <laughs> I don't believe that.
0: And, and and Jeffrey, for you, would that have been coming down in the world of YouTube or going up? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I mean, at this point, he had over, you know, a couple of million, you know, <laughs> views to his, so that's I, what I, I, mean. I'm not, I don't know if it would be a hit to his ego <laughs> to be brought onto the level of America's Test Kitchen. I don't know about that.
3: <laughs> but uh, the but million will is, is nothing right now, but that's about 10 years ago. <laughs> so probably, you know, a million is, is okay on that time. <laughs> so,
0: Jeffrey, tell us a bit about the family and, and where you came from and what Kevin grew up eating.
3: We came from Hong Kong. When I was 35 years old, I think I'm too old to move to the new country. So that's why the culture or language is my barrier. So that's why after I settled down in U.S., you know, uh, my living style is totally different with my kids. They're very Western. I'm very traditional, traditional family man. I always make the Cantonese food in, in Hong Kong and even in Seattle because the ingredient, you know, is easy to buy, the, you know, in Chinatown.
0: And, and Kevin, what was one of your favorite dishes that was on repeat?
3: There was a dish that we would eat
2: all the time. I think it must have been every Wednesday. And it's called Portuguese chicken, which <laughs> sounds very strange, but to Hong Kong kids, it is like mac and cheese. It is what they would eat every, uh, you know, on a weeknight. It's chicken, usually chicken thighs. And it would be cooked in this creamy coconut milk curry sauce. And it would be put under a broiler and, and baked and it would be served over rice. So you've got this rice, you've got this creamy, savory curry coconut milk sauce, and you've got, uh, you know, these really beautifully crusty chicken. You would also sprinkle Parmesan cheese on top of it, stick it under the broiler so it gets like very bubbly and crusty when it comes out. And we would eat this every single day. Wednesday, I think. I remember eating this in Hong Kong, and I remember eating this when we came to North America. And uh, it's just so evocative of, of childhood and to the point where I've got a son of my own, and I try to make that dish for him uh, you know, uh, from time to time.
0: I love that. So here you are. You're a kid who is basically living two lives. You're living your life outside the home. You're in college at SC, so you're in L.A., I would imagine you're eating um, Panda Express. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's true.
0: And and um, you're going home, and you're having you you're basically going back to China um, at the table. How did you go through that mind experience of first maybe putting your nose up of what is? American Chinese food and then reconciling yourself to it and eventually embracing it.
2: You know, the first time I ever tasted orange chicken was when I was at USC. I'm not sure if we were consciously avoiding that. I just knew that this was not the Chinese food that I ate growing up. You know, mushu pork and General So's chicken and egg foo young. It's, you know, it was as if my friends knew Chinese food as this one version and the Chinese food that I grew up with was something else completely different. And it wasn't until when I was at SC and I went to Panda Express and I had that orange chicken and I thought, well, this is really tasty. It's really, really delicious. And I think it was at that Mm -hmm. moment, Evan, that I thought like, okay, this is not in competition with the Chinese food I grew up eating. If I were in Beijing... And I told you about the food that I grew up eating in Hong Kong. Like you would not be able to recognize that food just because the Chinese food up in Beijing isn't from the Chinese food in Hong Kong, different from the one in Xinjiang and in Taiwan. And so I came to appreciate American Chinese food as its own genre. And, uh, you know, and, and the fact is that Good food is good food is good food. Uh, I'm not just plugging your show, but it's really, (laughs) really, but it's really tasty. And uh, I now view Chinese food as this big tent culinary genre. And, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the more people who come in and try it, the more entry points there are to get into Chinese food, the better. And that's kind of what we try to do with this book is to show that it's not a monolith. It's got a lot of different entry points and it can be all super tasty.
0: I want to I ask you about some of the food um, in the cookbook. Um, we've been living through an insane chili crisp moment. I, that's really no longer a moment, but a shift, maybe a, a forever shift in condiment mania. Um, could the two of you give us another condiment we should make that we will take to heart equally?
2: Exo sauce, and I think like we may are we might be at the crest of the exo sauce mania right now because I see a lot of great chefs do it, but I feel like it hasn't quite punched through into like you know the the uh, the the culinary vernacular, the popular consciousness yet, but. I am such a big fan of exosauce. sauce, and have you ever had it, Evan?
0: <laughs> yeah, I have. But describe okay. what it is.
2: The consistency is almost like, uh, like, like, like a relish, I would say. Okay, but it has—it's this intensely savory, uh, you know, sauce that has dried scallops. Uh, it sometimes has ham. It has garlic, and it's in this like chili oil. And you basically spoon it on top of noodles. And you, you know, the the way that I sort of describe to people who've never had it is, if they've had bacon jam, it is like that but made of seafood. It's like seafood jam. It's super savory. And uh, my dad actually has a recipe. And the reason why I say ExoSauce, because for Christmas one year, um, you know, he didn't send uh, a card or it wasn't like, you know, like a (laughs) gift certificate to Macy's. He sent me, my hand to God, Evan, he sent me a jar of ExoSauce that he made at home that he jarred up into a mason jar that was wrapped with about you know a four-inch layer of bubble wrap to make sure it doesn't leak, and he sent it to me. <laughs> and to this day, it might be my favorite Christmas present my parents have ever sent me, is their ExoSauce. And that recipe <laughs> is actually in the book as well. So I'm very grateful for that. But yes, America should learn about ExoSauce.
0: I mean, that's, that's a gift of love.
2: <laughs> you know you're you're right. I mean it's like it, it's so funny you say that say that Evan because a lot of American cultures that I know of and I think it's certainly true true of the Chinese we're not very expressive about how we feel about each other you know we're not going to be giving hugs or blowing kisses or saying I love you or, or anything like that but when we greet each other in Hong Kong we, we ask them, have you eaten yet? Have you eaten rice yet, right? And so like, that's our default way of greeting people. But to your point, you know, like we express our love and our, our <laughs> us caring about each other through food. The way my parents tell me Merry Christmas is with a jar of exo sauce.
3: <laughs> totally agree.
0: <laughs> so let's talk about some more food. Um, first of all, I... You know, as a kid growing up in LA eating Chinese food, the the restaurants at that time were all Cantonese. And I miss that food <laughs> a lot mm-hmm. because it's it's not so true anymore. One of my favorite things as a kid was shrimp toast. How do we
2: perfect it? Great question. Dad I mean, my dad ate a lot. You you ate you and mom ate a lot of shrimp toast growing up, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, so I'll tell you about the recipe that we that we do. You talk about a real hybrid of British and Chinese fusion food, it's shrimp toast. And so the way that we do with our recipe is that we like a little texture in the shrimp. So what we do is we finely minced half of the shrimp and the other half, we sort of chop into nice, chunky pieces. And then you whip mm-hmm. everything into a bowl. I think one thing you see a lot of uh, Chinese chefs do is we like to whip uh, any sort of proteins together. Part of that is about releasing the myosins in the food so that you get this very kind of like tootsome, bouncy texture. You know, the Taiwanese call it Q, right? So uh, so the way that we do our shrimp toast in our cookbook is we we chop it into two consistencies, and so you get that really fine mince, which gets that really nice to some uh, texture, as well as the big chunky pieces. So you know that the shrimp uh, is is legit, and uh, you're getting you know nice, generous pieces as well. So that's our secret to shrimp toast.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: I want to thank both of you for spending so much time with us. We really appreciate it. The two of you are just so great, and the cookbook is quite wonderful. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much, Evan. What a pleasure. It's it's so great to be on your show.
0: That was father and son duo, Kevin and Jeffrey Pang, who co-wrote a very Chinese cookbook, 100 Recipes from China and Not China. If you want to give the gift of ExoSauce this Christmas, head to kcrw.com slash recipe. We've also got a recipe for the Pang's family Portuguese chicken there too. In a minute, crispy egg rolls and Canton knish. It's a very Jewish Christmas when good food continues. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Many aromas waft through the air during the holiday season. Pie needles, cookies baked for the annual exchange, Chinese food... For many non-Christian Angelinos, specifically Jewish Angelinos living on the edge of the Fairfax district, Genghis Cohen has become an annual Christmas tradition. Mark Rose and Med Bruce are behind the restaurant which celebrates its 40th anniversary this year. They join us for this week's edition of In The Weeds.
5: My name is Mark Rose and I'm one of the co-owners of Genghis Cohen. I grew up in New York City Brooklyn, New York to be exact. And my memories of Chinese food go as far back as I can remember. Um, Oftentimes, uh, most likely a Sunday night, it's what my family and I ate. It was an exciting thing to go out for Chinese food. We'd either find a place locally in Brooklyn, but more than likely we'd we'd take ourselves over the bridge and into Chinatown and lower Manhattan my dad would look for lines where he saw less American people waiting to get in to eat. He thought that was the more authentic way of eating. But at the end of the day, this was New York style Chinese food, Chinese American food to be exact.
6: My name's Meta Bruce, and I'm the co-owner of Genghis Cohen. I uh, grew up in New York City, Manhattan, and Chinese food has always been part of our household. Similarly to Mark, It was a family tradition. It was actually something that was a special occasion we would look forward to. I recall getting dressed up and actually having to like wear a clip on tie to go to the Chinese restaurant because it was like a a fancy, you know, exciting occasion. Our whole family would go and, you know, sit around a Lazy Susan. And I just uh, was enamored from the chopsticks to, Uh, the delicious flavors that we're able to indulge in. Genghis Cohen originally uh, was opened in 1983 by Alan Rindy, who was actually a music producer. He was a New Yorker, a lot like us, and he would frequently record at a very famous studio across the street called Cherokee Studios. People that we've known that knew Alan recount the story and saying that he was really dismayed with the offerings of Chinese food in in the area, in the Fairfax District and in Hollywood. He said, I just can't get good egg rolls here. I can't get good Chinese food. He took a Chinese food cooking class in hopes that he would actually open a restaurant and kind of fulfill this void. After taking a few classes, he quickly realized that it was a very difficult thing to become a a Chinese food chef, (laughs) but met a chef, and shortly thereafter made a deal for a space on Fairfax, and he opened Genghis Cohen. And because of his kind of love and connection to music, a few years later, he opened what was then called the Genghis Cohen Cantina, which was the live music venue.
5: So when I first came to Los Angeles, Chinese food at the time, uh, and specifically this style of Chinese food, was, was difficult to find. And someone one day brought up to me Genghis Cohen. And my response was, well, that's the place I drive by often on Fairfax, but I'm not really looking for kosher Chinese. I'm looking for, you know, real New York style Chinese food. And I was quickly educated on that it was not kosher um, and came in for dining myself with a friend one night and was absolutely blown away. I mean, until then, I had my mother sending me packets of duck sauce that she would go and buy in Chinatown and ship out to me because I couldn't even get that. One day, Matt and I were in the midst of construction on a new project called Winsome, which was in Echo Park. And I got a phone call from a friend I grew up with back in Brooklyn. And he let me know that one of his neighbors, who's a real estate broker, has this amazing space slash restaurant opportunity. He would love to connect us. And I quickly said, no, no, we're too busy. We, we just don't have time. And uh, we own another cocktail bar in town called The Spare Room. So unbeknownst to me, uh, the next evening, I was at the bar during service and he showed up, my friend, with this real estate broker. And he just really wanted to keep pitching me on the idea of this space that he thought was a great opportunity. So I listened. Finally, I found out it was Genghis Cohen. And I quickly let him know that I actually had no interest in the space but we had full interest in Genghis cohen so we then had to set a meeting with the former owners which was a a great chinese family that bought it from alan rindy and the patriarch of that family who had since passed started out as the manager of this restaurant so he had been around since day day zero and then the family took over and they were operating and running it for a good number of years And when it was time to retire and move on, we needed to convince them that Genghis Cohen was as important to us as it was to them who had been involved since the very beginning.
6: So it was a really, really fun exercise and a delicate one. We were very vigilant to, at first, really not change anything. We took some time with the Q family to, even before the sale had gone through, just to be there every day and ask lots of questions about the operation and see how they were doing things. And it was really fun at the beginning just to kind of greet people as we were customers and provide an experience that was, you know, equal but different.
5: You know, you read about the history of, of, jewish culture and chinese food and there's a lot of different things written um there's a pretty famous saying i think it sounds kind of cool it's called safe treif you know treif is a, a, a word that basically means unkosher and there's no milk used in chinese food so right away mixing of dairy and meat gets eliminated but you know if you think about the history of of especially new york style chinese food and the history of the lower east side and chinatown and all these sort of amalgamation of cultures coming together it's sort of a natural progression that on a holiday for christmas for instance when Jewish people are not celebrating that holiday, but they still wanna go and eat somewhere where they feel welcomed and they feel like they can be amongst groups of people still celebrating, still enjoying a night out. It seemed like Chinese restaurants that were open on that day were a place just for that.
6: You know, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day are, are by far our busiest days of the year, just in terms of sheer volume. We could do anywhere between 600 uh, to 700 covers in those days respectively and that's not counting delivery
5: and for the most part all of the Genghis Cohen hits are there uh the Genghis Cohen queen chicken the cracker jack shrimp I think there's no better day than to celebrate with the the duck it's called the no-name duck it's crispy you have your bao bun not a pancake you have bao buns in which to make it and I feel like that's a really good family style dish to have that day That was Mark Rose and
0: Med Abrus, owners of Genghis Cohen, which is celebrating 40 years in business this year. Coming up, what does agriculture have to do with statehood? Why are eel knives different in Kyoto and Tokyo? And why is it so satisfying to crinkle a bag of potato chips? My next guests have all the answers. Stay with us. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. When we heard that mother and son team Mary White and Benjamin we're, we're collaborating on a book we knew it would be up our alley. I first interviewed Mary, aka Quirky, in 2012 when she published her book Coffee Life in Japan. And if you're a frequent listener of this show, you'll recognize her son, Benjamin Wergaft, as the author behind Meat Planet, a fascinating book that grapples with the philosophical and ethical issues surrounding cultured meat. Their latest collaboration, Ways of Eating, takes its title from the 1972 art history book, Ways of Seeing, and uses a series of vignettes to consider the different ways we can look at food. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for coming to the show today.
4: It's an honor, Evan, thank you.
7: Thank you very
0: much, Evan. I've been saying the sentence food is political for decades now, but you make a fascinating connection between the birth of agriculture and how it coincides with the rise of statehood. You quote a political scientist named James Scott. Tell us about his theory and what it tells us about the origin of what we might call food politics. So,
4: (laughs) Jim Scott's idea, which um, he develops, and he's not developing it out of whole cloth, it's it's, it's out of the work of many people before him, in a book called Against the Grain, and that title says it all, it's against the grain, against (laughs) um, staple grain agriculture, is that when sedentary agriculture takes hold, and one of the things we can talk about at length is whether or not it happened at one fell swoop or whether or not it happened through a series of changes sometimes rolled back over many human generations around the world. But he thinks that what happens is that those grains become the basis of taxation, of exchange, and of the bureaucracy of the state. So if you were to look back through the millennia at um, forms of documentation, things like the Persepolis fortification tablets in ancient Persia, you will, will, will see evidence of agriculture used, he believes, as a means of control as a means of control over populations. And the origin of the state for Scott, who in many ways is a kind of progressive anarchist, is a a means of control over peoples who otherwise would be able to live in more freely, more egalitarian fashions, in more egalitarian kinds of communities. And these are sort of famously thought of as barbarians beyond the gates in ancient empires, but he thinks that they're substantially more free. Um, so that's that's the James Scott argument. We're not invested in it exactly, but we are invested in the connection that he draws between the origins of agriculture and the formation of states and sophisticated forms of political organization.
0: We recently had Anya von Bremsen on the show to talk about her new book, National Dish. And, and this idea of national cuisine has continued to gnaw at me. Corky, in writing about a meal you had in Korea, you say quote, we can try to peel away the layers of foreign foods and remove them from our cuisines, but there is no center to reach. Tell us about that meal and how you came to this conclusion.
7: Oh, That was a fascinating moment in my food life. Um, I was in Korea. Uh, I was living in Japan at that time. And I come to Korea and and however similar East Asians may appear from outside, uh, Korea seemed wildly different to me in food and in everything. So we went to a restaurant, my Japanese friends and I, which... Um, was about uh, pre-contact food uh, in Korea. This actually is a concept that exists all over the world, like Hawaiian pre-contact food before James Cook came to Hawaii. But in Korea, it really, I guess, amounts to pre-Western contact and particularly uh, the Colombian exchange the famous... Uh, you know, constructed moment <laughs> when things like tomatoes, potatoes, chilies and everything were brought from the so-called new world to the old world. And so Korean food had not yet received chilies, uh, particularly that because it is now characterized by this red gochujang paste, you know, the chili is and everything. So this restaurant served things that, didn't have any of those uh, substances in them. And it it was, though, representative of a pre-contact national cuisine that allowed people to imagine a past that might be seen by some as purer Korean than the post-Columbian Korea. I was really taken by the meal, which was delicious, had no chilies. Um, it had other high points, you know, high taste points. But when you're expecting the chili, and especially what has now become Korea's iconic identity food, kimchi. I mean, kimchi has led to, you know, culinary wars between, uh, for example, Japan and and Korea, uh, where Japanese making kimchi are not allowed in Korean hearing anyway to pronounce it kimchi, but have to say kimu chi Anyway, this meal had none of those things until the very, very end. Just before we were going to pay the bill and leave, a waiter brought over a dish of kimchi red with those chilies, uh, really vibrant. And he sa- he was almost apologetic. He said, I think you should have this um, because this is our food. And I thought about it a lot afterwards. In the moment, of course, it was a delight. I mean, it, it was full of acid and spark and um, was an interesting way to end a meal too, kind of a dessert um
0: let's talk about tools because one aspect of how we eat are the tools that we choose to cook and eat with you you write extensively about visiting knife shops in japan and you note that japanese knives just like food are regional can you share an example of that maybe the eel knife in tokyo versus
7: kyoto that's a really fascinating story thank you um knives are of course um Made in Japan and, and other places too, of course, to perform specific functions and serve certain needs. Um, the eel, of course, is a fish that uh, exists in a lot of places in Japan. It is not just a regional dish, but there is there there are some profound eel dishes that do have identities. Well, the eel knife. Uh, say in Nagoya or in Kyoto uh, has a, a, a different shape. It's a completely different tool to the point where one of my Japanese friends raised in, in Kyoto, um, looked looking at a Tokyo eel knife said, well, how can that be so different? I mean, it's the same fish, isn't it? And then we look at the way in which the eel is cut open and that's really interesting because in Tokyo, with the sort of holdover of old samurai culture before the imperial household was moved to Tokyo with the Meiji Restoration, that was, it was a kind of samurai culture, you know. And of course, part of samurai culture was, uh, you know, the, the the practice of atoning for a terrible sin against your Lord by committing seppuku or harakiri and cutting your own belly open. whereas in Kyoto, which was an imperial city, but not a samurai city, um, such a practice never occurred to anybody so in Tokyo you avoid cutting the belly of a fish because of the reference to um, c- cutting your own belly open whereas in Kyoto a place of aesthetic you know courtier life uh, the idea of cutting from the front is more important for the quality of the food that you're going to make from it so the eel knife shows a very strange historical cultural difference that persists
0: Another another tidbit that you give us in the book is about uh, architectural historian Rayner Banham, who wrote in 1970 an entire essay on the relationship between the crisp or potato chip
4: and its bag. What did he propose? So this is, this is one of my very (laughs) favorite, very short essays. And, um, I would actually like to just take a second and quote him here, uh, if I can find my quotation, uh, to Banham. Um, the, the argument here that Banham offers in, in, in this short I think it's a two-page essay called The Crisp at the, Cro- at the Crossroad. And here we have this British architectural historian who wrote rapturously about Los Angeles and said that he learned how to drive in L.A. in order to read L.A. in the vernacular. That was his, his line. He writes about the relationship between the crisp and the package. For him, it's emotional in its function. And what, what that means is that he writes, it's the first and most familiar of total destructo products. He's referring to the experience <laughs> of ripping open a bag and eating, crunching down all of these chips. It's the first and most familiar of total destructo products and probably sublimates more aggression per annum than any quantity of dramaturgical catharsis. <laughs> so, so. Obviously there's pleasure in reading these lines, but also thinking about the idea that there is something vernacular about certain physical experiences and industrial packaging fits into that in the same way Banham is telling us as oars in the hands of ancient Greek sailors or the ax handle or the plow in the hands of an 18th century English peasant. And one of the reasons I I, I focus on this is not only that I think that technologies in food have certain kinds of emotional resonance, because of course, anybody who has a favorite saucepan knows that they do, but also that we were focused in the book on this idea of ways of eating as a way of getting at this complicated relationship between food cultures and their tools.
0: It's just such, um, I will never open... A bag of potato chips and eat from it in the same way again. (laughs) Well, I want to thank the two of you for producing such a marvelous work that um, we can enjoy by just simply opening it to any page.
4: Oh, that's wonderful. Evan, that's so kind. And Evan, I I want to add something, which is that um, good food is in this book. And what I mean is that there's so much as a listener to Good Food that I learned about and incorporated down to Peter Miller's emphasis on how to wash the dishes. So, so thank you.
7: Oh, yeah. I'm tearing up. And I've <laughs> learned this from my son as well, and I'm an avid listener. So thank you so much.
0: Thank you. That was Ben Wergaft and Mary Corky-White. Ways of Eating is the kind of book that literally you can just pick up and open to any page and find something fascinating and thoughtful to marinate on. If you missed any of today's show, listen at KCRW.com slash or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, and Alina Shatkin, and to our engineers, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and Hope Brush. And a special thanks to Laura Kondarajan and Gary Masiha. I'm Evan Kleiman. My Christmas day brunch is bagel, lox and cream cheese. What's yours? I'll meet you back here next week for another edition of good food.